Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, he was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets." All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all, his, all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt... With a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O oh my God, because your city 
and your people are called by your name. Heavenly Father, we have looked to your word, and now, Father, we look to you that, Lord, you may be pleased to teach us and instruct us, guide us, speak to us, O Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This morning, obviously, we return to our study in Daniel, and it always amazes me how fast the Christmas season goes by. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Donald and I were scurrying to try to get that video done, and uh, here we are. We're back in Daniel again already. And uh, we return uh, to Daniel, and namely, we, we pick up where we left off uh, with the, this prayer that Daniel utters. Now, we've spent some time in in Daniel 9, we've kind of actually been camping out in chapter 9. We've moved pretty quickly through Daniel, but uh, uh, I'd like to spend just a little bit more time in, in Daniel 9 as we look at this, this great prayer. And, and prayer, the subject of prayer, really in one sense, prayer is quite simple. Uh, and it's quite natural for us, I think. I was traveling into Chester uh, yesterday. I was on... Uh, right up here on Chester Hill, and uh, uh, somebody's dog ran right out in front of the car, and, and uh, uh, you know, I was able to stop, but I was worried about the oncoming train. It looked like there was going to be an accident, and, and what just naturally flowed forth from my, my lips, I was praying for the whole situation. I mean, in many respects, prayer is so natural to us, and so it comes uh, relatively easy, especially in those circumstances. But that having been said, prayer is also very challenging too, isn't it? Have you ever gone into your prayer closet or wherever it is that you pray only to discover you can't think of anything to say? Or am I the only one that's had that experience? Or you realize after you've babbled for a while that you don't really have anything to say and you're just kind of saying the same thing over and over again. Or, uh, as you begin to pray, you might have something that's really burdening your heart. You get that out. After you get that out, next thing you know, you're thinking about changing the oil in your car uh, or whatever. Um, I think prayer is a very challenging thing. Uh, now, uh, someone might hear this and think, well, this is silly. Everyone knows how to pray. Uh, but before we go there, let's remember what the disciples once asked Jesus. They said, Lord, teach us to what? Teach us to pray. And they had the benefit of being with Jesus every day, 24-7, yet they asked for help and prayer. Now, if they needed help, I have a sneaking suspicion that maybe we need some help as well. Uh, would we all give an amen to that? Uh, I know I do. So uh, the Bible contains many prayers, and our present text is one of the great ones. And in our text, we see that Daniel... He is seeking the Lord in prayer, and he's calling on the Lord for his abundant mercy. He's calling on him to restore Israel for God's glory. If you look at verse 16, and there you see Daniel calls on the Lord, and he says, quote, Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. And then in verse 17, Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Now, now, we can get from these verses that Daniel's purpose here is to implore the Lord to restore Israel and uh, especially to restore the temple. You'll recall 
from our study in Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar had gone in and he had ransacked the place. Um, so it's, it's, it's laying in desolation. The people largely had been carried off and deported to uh, other places. And the purpose of Daniel's prayer is to implore the Lord uh, to restore this. Now, I'm saying this because I've introduced this message and I've entitled this message as a lesson in prayer. Now, that having been said, uh, it, it is not Daniel's purpose here to give us a lesson in prayer. Yeah, I want us to understand that right now. Um, his purpose is to implore the Lord to restore Israel. Uh, someone say, okay, well, shouldn't you preach on that, Dad? Um, well, um, we could. But in the process of Daniel imploring the Lord the way that he does, a wonderful byproduct of this activity is a great lesson in prayer, isn't it? I mean, you read the book of Daniel uh, for the first time, or even for the 20th time, or even for the 70th time. You get to Daniel 9, and you're struck by this prayer, aren't you? I mean, this prayer really sweeps you off your feet. If, has it had that effect on you ever? If you're a reader of Daniel, I suspect that it has. So we have what Daniel presents us here is an abundance of material uh, in the school of prayer. And that's what I want to take up this morning. As I began to study this material uh, earlier, uh, an outline really kind of quickly emerged. And I have actually learned over the years not to pay a lot of attention. I used to get very excited. Oh, great, I got an outline already. This, this, is, this, is, just, this is just going wonderful. And then I would continue to study the passage. Donald's smiling. He knows what I'm talking about. You continue to study the passage, and then you look at your outline, and you think, oh, goodness. Um, that belongs in the, I got a little file next to my desk. Uh, some of us call it file 13, and that's where most of those outlines go. But in this particular case, this outline is, is stuck um, with me, and it's a simple approach. It's uh, three different headings. We have Daniel's posture, Daniel's guide, and Daniel's desire. Now, what do I mean by these things? Well, Daniel's posture, in other words, uh, what is Daniel's overarching attitude and approach to God as he goes to God in prayer? That's what I mean by his posture. Uh, as guide, what's Daniel's guide? What is guiding Daniel's thoughts and his words? We've talked about sometimes the problem we have of going to God in prayer. and We don't know what to say. Uh, where's Daniel getting this from? Is, he just, is this just uh, originating from his heart or where is he getting this from? So we're going to look at Daniel's guide and Daniel's desire. What is the desire of Daniel's heart here? What is the overarching uh, desire of Daniel's heart? Uh, that's uh, very crucial to prayer. First Samuel 16, 7 teaches us that, quote, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. So the heart is very crucial here. Now, this sounds simple enough, but it's a lot of information. We're only going to get done with the first head heading this morning, Daniel's posture. That's all I'm going to try to do. I'm going to resist the temptation to try to take the whole thing and dump that on you. I'm not going to do that to you. But as we uh, take up the uh, Daniel's posture this morning, I think we're going to have enough uh, for one morning. Uh, it's, it's a lot of information. And secondly, it concerns an, an important subject. 
it's such an important subject that if we go wrong here, it can have devastating consequences. Uh, so we want to be sure that we, that we get this right. So let's, let's begin with Daniel's posture. I think if all that we do is just read Daniel really quickly, Daniel 9, I think we can quickly see that Daniel's in a deep posture of repentance, isn't he? You know, if you look at verse 5, Daniel confesses, quote, we have sinned. Continuing in verse 5, we have, uh, that we have done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, turning aside from your commandments. And to make matters worse, the Lord had sent his prophets. Uh, you remember uh, a couple weeks ago we were talking about the prophets. The prophets were covenant spokespersons. They came and they called Israel uh, to the covenant, they reminded Israel uh, of the covenant. If you look at verse 10, uh, Daniel laments that Israel has not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his what? His servants, the prophets. And the prophets, they have been sent to uh, the kings, to the princes, to the fathers, to the people. Um, they've been sent uh, to everyone in order to call uh, the people of God back to the covenant of God, to obey his laws and seek him with a devoted heart. Now, we know why Israel is in exile. They've been spending the last 70 years in exile because of their apostasy, right? We've studied that. We've looked at that. So repentance is certainly due here. Uh, but all of this having been said, there's a profound lesson here about prayer. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks a question. In question 98, it asks, what is prayer? Uh, and that uh, may strike you as kind of an odd question, I've never, I, I was earlier was trying to think of one single time when someone asked me, and they said, you know, uh, Rick, could I talk with you for a second? And, uh, and have asked me, you know, could you tell me what prayer is? Um, I, I, no one has ever asked me that question. I don't expect anyone to really, because I think we all know what prayer is. Uh, but do we? You remember uh, last week I was talking about all these words, that we use, that we think we all know what mean. Surely everybody knows what prayer is, right? Let's listen to this answer and then see if we really do. The answer is prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. I think we probably all come up with something like that. We probably wouldn't use this language. We'd probably say, well, prayer is going to God and expressing to God the things that are on our heart. Or prayer is talking to God about things that are on our heart. It's probably the answer that we would give, but the catechism continues. It continues with this phrase, for things agreeable to God's will. I'm not sure we would, I'm not sure all of us would throw that in there, because I don't think we think that way. That's why I'm challenging, do we really know what prayer is? Okay, it's an, it's, it's an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ. Now, we would get that, wouldn't we? As we pray in Jesus' name all the time. I think we would get that, but I wonder if we know what that means. And I'm not going to go into that now because that would be, that, that's time for another day. But I would challenge you to think about that. What does it mean to do this in Christ's name? That's a subject for another day. But um, the next phrase in the answer is with confession of our sins. With confession of of our sins and thankful acknowledgments of his mercies thankful acknowledgment of his mercies 
So I'm not sure if we were asked, okay, what is prayer? I'm not sure that we would include, we, we certainly wouldn't answer the question this exact way, but I'm not sure we would include all of these components. Now, there's little doubt that prayers such as the one we're studying here in Daniel informed the Westminster Assembly in drafting this powerful answer. I mean, according to the answer, confession of sin is to be a vital part of prayer. And if we, um, um, if we were to look at the scriptures, if we were to look at uh, the Psalms, for instance, we would find this all over the place. Like, I'll just read a few verses. Uh, Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Or Psalm 38, 18. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Or uh, Psalm 40 and verse 12, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. Now listen to this next line. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. Uh, Or if you'll turn to Psalm 51, you've got your bulletin there. Keep your finger in Daniel 9, but turn to Psalm 51. It's starting with verse 3. Really, the whole psalm speaks to uh, repentance. That's the subject of the entire psalm. If you look at verse 3, David says, For I know my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We hear the repentance in that, don't we? Sin is what separates us from God, isn't it? When Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, what happened? They were banished from the garden and they were separated from God. Sin separates us from God. So it makes sense that repentance should be a vital and crucial and central part in our prayers to God, does it not? Well, that leads to another question. What is repentance? Now, surely everybody knows what repentance is, right? Or is it also one of those words that we talk about all the time, but maybe we don't understand as well as we think we understand? Um, I think you can tell by the way I'm framing this. I've seen this so many times. It's been my own pastoral experience over the years that um, really relatively few people understand repentance. And uh, I say this because... There's been many, many times where people have come to me and they said, I got this problem. And, and uh, we sit down and we talk about the problems. And, and uh, as we get to the really nitty-gritty of the problem, it you know, often stems from something that's gone on, uh, something that's burning in them, uh, something that's caused their life to be somewhat of a mess. And, uh, of course, uh, repentance is suggested and uh, uh, a, Repentance is pursued, and you're hopeful in the end that the person has really truly repented of these 
uh, of these um, sins and has turned from them, only to discover later that uh, that, that has probably not been the case. Uh, it's been my personal experience that a lot of times we have a tendency to confuse biblical repentance for simply being sorry over the consequences of our actions. We feel all of this anguish and all of this uh, uh, guilt and uh, we feel sorry because we've made our life a mess. Now, um, who wouldn't? When we make our life a mess, we generally do feel sorry about that, don't we? Is that repentance? I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I was ministering to a young man that we met on the street right over in East Liverpool. And he was in some legal trouble, and he had a hearing coming up. And uh, I'll tell you, I mean, I really thought I shared the gospel with him and and met with him several times. Uh, He even came to church a couple of times. And I was pretty, I actually was pretty encouraged that this young man was coming to, really coming to true repentance. Uh, In our discussions, it sounded like it was. Uh, His hearing date came. And uh, he really, I, 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 you know, he really thought he was going to have to do some jail time uh, for what he had done. Uh, his hearing date came. The judge was lenient on him, and I saw him one time since then. And that was down here at Mickey D's. And when he saw me, he did everything he could to avoid me. Now, um, that looked like biblical repentance to me. Um, and it's through many experiences like that that I've learned to back up. And you'll hear me talk about, uh, you know, uh, 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 I've been ministering, I usually don't use names, but I've been ministering to such and such, or I've been ministering to a person, and they seem like, the, seems like the Lord's working on their hearts. Listen, you don't really usually hear me say, I think that they've come to faith in Christ. I might say, I think, to, I think it looks like they're coming to faith in Christ. I'm not real quick to say that. I'll tell you why I'm not real quick to say that, because we're going to have to wait and see. We're just going to have to wait and see. There's a hearing coming up, you know? Let's see what happens after the hearing. Let's see after the, you know, if he's leniency. Let's see if we're still in the mood then. Because a natural person without the assistance of God's grace is very genuinely sorry when they make a mess out of their lives. Uh, the shorter catechism also gives us a definition of repentance that is really helpful. And question number 87 asks, what is repentance unto life? Now notice the question. I don't think today we'd even ask this question. I think we would just say, what is repentance? We would just write, what is repentance? But that isn't what they did. They wrote, what is repentance unto life? You see, these men were pastors, they were soul doctors, they were physicians of the soul, and they understood these things quite well. So they asked the question, what is repentance unto life? And that should be the only repentance that we're interested in. The old preachers used to say that this was a such and such repentance, the repentance of this young man facing the hearing. That was a repentance that needed repented of. And they, you'll read that expression in the old writings if you, if you read those writings, which I, 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 I suggest you do from time to time. A repentance that needs repented of. What is repentance 
unto life. That should be the only repentance that we're interested in because that's the only repentance that's saving. What is repentance unto life? Repentance, answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace. Notice it's a saving grace. You see, this is the work of God in the heart of a person. This isn't something we produce on our own. This isn't something we conjure up in our hearts. This isn't something that we can even do left unattended uh, by God's hand. Repentance unto life is first a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Now that's a lot to sit and listen to and try to take in. I want to only focus on a couple portions of this because it's relevant. It's relevant to uh, what we're looking at here. Uh, the catechism speaks of uh, hatred uh, and grief over sin. And it's referring to this hatred and grief over the fact that God has been offended. Did, does that come out clear? Let me put it another way because, listen, when you're talking with people about repentance, this is what you need to be looking for. And as you think about your own repentance, this is what you need to be looking for. Are you grieving over the fact you've offended God? Are we grieving over the fact that we've offended God? Uh, you're still in Psalm 51, correct? Are you still there? Look at verse 4. What's David say there? He says, against you, who's you? Against God, against the Lord, against you. You only have I sinned and done was evil in your sight. Now, some of you know the context of this. Uh, but for the benefit of those who don't know the context of this, what has David done? Uh, did, did he do a little small little thing? He's... He, He's on the roof of his palace and he looks over at another roof and there's a woman bathing on the roof, right? He's attracted to her, so he whistles for his men to go get her with full knowledge that she is the wife of one of his soldiers. And what does he do? He has an affair with her, which results in her becoming impregnated with his child. So in order to, cut it, to cover it up, he whistles for Uriah, her husband, to come out of the, the battlefield, which he comes, but he refuses to go to his, his house. He stays right at the king's side. So when that backfires, David orders him to be murdered out in the field, doesn't he? Now, David has sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against Uriah. He has sinned against all the people of Israel, hasn't he? But yet, what does he say in verse 4? Against you. You only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. Now with this, David's not, David's not denying the fact that he has sinned against Bathsheba, that he has sinned against Uriah, that he has sinned against... He's not even minding. What, what he is doing here is he is demonstrating that he has received the grace of repentance here because he sees that ultimately his big issue is with God. That doesn't diminish his issue with Uriah. That doesn't diminish his issue with the people of Israel who he has failed as king. That doesn't diminish his issue with Bathsheba. But ultimately, above all of that, is his issue with God. Do you see that? So all of our sins, as we, as we sin, we violate each other. 
not to diminish these violations of each other. Our big issue is we've sinned against God. That's the big issue. And that is fundamentally missing in so many uh, cases of repentance. This is what we need to be looking for. Because you see, when the hearing and the, the hearing comes and the judge is lenient, you've still sinned against God. You see. Does that make sense? Now, with all of this being said, I think something else needs to be added to this because oftentimes when we talk about these things, we don't add this other part. This other part is really important. It's common for us to think that God's not interested in pulling us out of masses. I don't know that it's commonly thought of here. I'm guessing maybe not so much, but it is common out there. And the line of thinking goes this way. Well, I got myself into this mess and uh, God expects me to get myself out of this mess. And when I get out of this mess, then I'll come to God. And uh, the line of thinking goes that way. How many have heard that line of thinking before? It's very, very popular. Well, listen, um, th that's not Daniel's attitude here, is it? If we're thinking back to Daniel 9. Daniel's in a deep posture of repentance. He's clearly confessing that Israel got herself into this mess, right? Over and over throughout the whole prayer, Israel got herself into this mess. But Daniel is imploring God to get them out of it. And that brings us to another point that's very very critical that the catechism brings out very clearly. I mean, no one repents unless they perceive that God is merciful. Is God going to be merciful to me? If you don't think he's going to be merciful to you, you're not going to go to him. Who's going to go to God if you don't think he's going to be merciful? And we'll hear people say, well, I, there's just no way. I just don't see how God could ever forgive me for this. I've done this. I don't see how God could ever forgive me for this. When we think along those lines, we're denying that God's merciful. Or at least he's not merciful enough to receive us. But the catechism says, listen to it really carefully. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, that's, that's Psalm 51.4, okay, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. In other words, uh, a, a repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, where he or she, sees that they've truly sinned against God, but also sees that God's merciful hand is being extended to them in order to receive them and forgive them. Does that make sense? The truly repentant are those who believe God is merciful, that he's offering mercy. And Daniel expresses this everywhere. Look at Daniel 9, verse 3. Daniel turns his face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for what? Seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. You see that? Verse 8, if you look down there to verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belongs what? Mercy and forgiveness. You go down to verse 17. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for what? For mercy. 
Verse 18, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. No, what's the warrant for Daniel doing what he does? No, because of your great what? Your great mercy. I remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the gospel, what the gospel was. We talked about the creation account. We've all been created by God. He's given us life and he sustains our life. And out of that, we owe him worship and service. Then comes the bad news. We have not given him the worship and service that, that we owe him. And in contrast, we've spit in his face. You remember that? We've spit in his face. All men, women, and children were born into that posture. We're not born into a posture of repentance. We're born into a, a posture of opposing God, a posture of hatred towards God. That's why Jesus can say, listen, unless you repent, you will what? You will perish. You see how crucial this is? You see why I want to spend at least a, a Sunday morning on this? And we find Daniel in this posture of deep repentance for a reason. But the great lesson we have here, the great lesson, the great, the good news, that's what comes next. Remember, it's the creation, bad news, good news. The good news is God come in Christ Jesus and he's got, the, he's got those, those, those pierced hands extended out to us, doesn't he? Have we blown it? Yes. Have we blown it big time? Yes. Have we spit in God's face? Yes. Is he willing to receive us? Is he ready to receive us and wash us of that filthiness? A resounding yes. Resounding yes. And may the Holy Spirit help us apply this to our prayer life and may he help us apply this to our witness. I mean, as we get the opportunity to call others to repentance, don't forget the mercy. Don't forget the mercy. We're not going to repent if we don't, if we don't understand that mercy is being offered to us. We're not going to repent. But mercy is being offered to us. And we're being commanded to repent. So in conclusion, we see that Daniel's posture is a posture of deep repentance, and we've learned that our prayers are also to be cut from the same cloth. And repentance is a way of life. It's to be central and important ingredient to our personal prayer life. We'll pick up the other headings next week. Uh, till then, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the truth that uh, we have uh, considered this morning, Father, as we look to this great prayer, we understand Daniel's, Daniel's main concern is not to give us a lesson in prayer, but to implore you, O oh Father, to restore Israel. But, oh Father, we also understand that in the process, Lord, we learn so much about prayer by watching, by being able to be tutored by this great man of prayer. And, Father, more importantly, we're being tutored by the Holy Spirit and being tutored and guided uh, by your very word. Uh, so, Father, we pray that you would be pleased, Lord, to shape and mold us and uh, uh, fashion us to be in, in this likeness, Father. We really do desire that our, our prayer life be cut from this very, very fabric, from this very cloth, uh, that, uh, Father, as we approach you, our posture, our heart attitude would be one of deep repentance. Father, we recognize this is a saving grace and this is not something we can conjure up on our own. Uh, so, Father, we look to you for it and 
we call on you for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.